Volume 1, Book 1, Chapters 20-28 through 28 of The Life of Apollonius of Tyana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Apollonius of Tyana by Flavius Philostratus. Translated by F. C. Coneybear. Volume 1, Book 1. Chapter 20 such was the companion and admirer that he had met with and in common with him most of his travels and life were past and as they fared on into mesopotamia the tax-gatherer who presided over the bridge zeugma led them into the registry and asked them what they were taking out of the country with them and apollonius replied i am taking with me temperance justice virtue continence valour discipline and in this way he strung together a number of feminine nouns or names the other already scenting his own perquisites said you must then write down in the register these female slaves apollonius answered impossible for they are not female slaves that i am taking out with me but ladies of quality now mesopotamia is bordered on one side by the tigris and on the other by the euphrates rivers which flow from armenia and from the lowest slopes of taurus but they contain a tract like a continent in which there are some cities though for the most part only villages and the races that inhabit them are the armenian and the arab these races are so shut in by the rivers that most of them who lead the life of nomads are so convinced that they are islanders as to say that they are going down to the sea when they are merely on their way to the rivers and think that these rivers border the earth and encircle it for they curve round the continental tract in question and discharge their waters into the same sea but there are people who say that the greater part of the euphrates is lost in a marsh and that this river ends in the earth but some have a bolder tale to which they adhere and declare that it runs under the earth to turn up in egypt and mingle itself with the nile well for the sake of accuracy and truth and in order to leave out nothing of the things that damis wrote i should have liked to relate all the incidents that occurred on their journey through these barbarous regions but my subject hurries me on to greater and more remarkable episodes nevertheless i must perforce dwell upon two topics on the courage which apollonius showed in making a journey through races of barbarians and robbers which were not at that time as yet subject to the romans and at the cleverness with which after the manner of the arabs he managed to understand the language of animals for he learnt this on his way through these arab tribes who best understand it and practise it for it is quite common for the arabians to listen to the birds prophesying like any oracles but they acquire this faculty of understanding them by feeding themselves so they say either on the heart or the liver of serpents chapter twenty one he left tesiphon behind and passed on to the borders of babylon and here was a frontier garrison belonging to the king which one could not pass by without being questioned who one was and as to one's city and one's reasons for coming there and there was a satrap in command of this post a sort of eye of the king i imagine 
for the Mede had just acceded to the throne, and instead of being content to live in security, he worried himself about things real and imaginary, and fell into fits of fear and panic. Apollonius, then, and his party, were brought before the satrap, who had just set up the awning on his wagon, and was driving out to go somewhere else. When he saw a man so dried up and parched, he began to bawl out like a cowardly woman, and hid his face, and could hardly be induced to look up at him. He said, Whence do you come to us, and who sent you? As if he was asking questions of a spirit. And Apollonius replied, I have sent myself to see whether I can make men of you, whether you like it or not. He asked a second time who he was to come trespassing like that into the king's country, and Apollonius said, All the earth is mine, and I have a right to go all over it and through it. Whereupon the other said, I will torture you if you don't answer my questions, said the other, and I hope that you will do it with your own hands, so that you may catch it well if you touch a true man. Now the eunuch was astonished to find that Apollonius needed no interpreter, but understood what he said without the least trouble or difficulty. He said, By the gods, who are you? this time altering his tone to a whine of entreaty. And Apollonius replied, Since you have asked me civilly this time, and not so rudely as before, listen, I will tell you who I am. I am Apollonius of Tyana, and my road leads me to the king of India, because I want to acquaint myself with the country there, and I shall be glad to meet your king, for those who have associated with him say that he is no bad fellow, and certainly he is not, if he is this Varden who has lately recovered the empire which he had lost. Replied the other, He is the same, O divine Apollonius, for we have heard of you a long time ago, and in favor of so wise a man as you, he would, I am sure, step down off his golden throne and send your party to India each of you mounted on a camel, and I myself now invite you to be my guest, and I beg to present you with these treasures. And at the moment he pointed out a store of gold to him, saying, Take as many handfuls as you like, fill your hands, not once, but ten times. And when Apollonius refused the money, he said, Well, at any rate, you will take some of the Babylonian wine in which the king pledges us, his ten satraps. Take a jar of it, with some roast steaks of bacon and venison, and some meal and bread and anything else you like. For the road after this, for many stades, leads through villages which are ill-stocked with provision. And here the eunuch caught himself up and said, Oh, ye gods, what have I done? for I have heard that this man never eats the flesh of animals, nor drinks wine, and here I am inviting him to dine in a gross and ignorant manner. Said Apollonius, Well, you can offer me a lighter repast, and give me bread and dried fruits. Said the other, I will give you leavened bread and palm dates, like amber and of good size, and I will supply you with vegetables, the best which the gardens of the Tigris afford. 
Apollonius said, Well, the wild herbs which grow free are nicer than those which are forced and artificial. The satrap said, They are nicer, I admit, but our land in the direction of Babylon is full of wormwood, so that the herbs which grow in it are disagreeably bitter. In the end, Apollonius accepted the satrap's offer, and as he was on the point of going away, he said, My excellent fellow, don't keep your good manners to the end another time, but begin with them. This, by way of rebuking him for saying that he would torture him, and for the barbaric language which he had heard to begin with. Chapter 22 After they had advanced twenty stades, they chanced upon a lioness that had been slain in a chase, and the brute was bigger than any they had ever seen. And the villagers rushed up and cried out, and to tell the truth so did the huntsmen, when they saw what an extraordinary thing lay before them. And it really was a marvel, for when it was cut asunder they found eight whelps within it. And the lioness becomes a mother in this way. They carry their young for six months, but they bring forth young only three times. And the number of whelps at the first birth is three, and at the second, two. And if the mother makes a third attempt, it bears only a single whelp, but, I believe, a very big one, and preternaturally fierce. For we must not believe those who say that the whelps of a lioness make their way out into the world by clawing through their mother's womb. For nature seems to have created the relationship of offspring to mother for their nourishment, with a view to the countenance of the race. Apollonius then eyed the animal for a long time, with attention, and then he said, O oh, Damis, the length of our stay with the king will be a year and eight months, for neither will he let us go sooner than that, nor will it be to our advantage to quit him earlier. And you may guess the number of months from that of the whelps, and that of the years of the lioness, for you must compare holes with holes. And Damis replied, But what of the sparrows in Homer, what do they mean? the ones which the dragon devoured in Aulis, which were eight in number, when he seized their mother for a ninth. Calchas surely explained these to signify nine years, and predicted that the war with Troy would last so long. So take care that Homer may not be right, and Calchas too, and that our stay may not extend to nine years abroad. Apollonius replied, well, Homer was surely quite right in comparing the nestlings to years, for they are already hatched out and in the world. But what I had in mind were incomplete animals that were not yet born, and perhaps never would have been born. How could I compare them to years? For things that violate nature can hardly come to be, and they anyhow quickly pass to destruction, even if they do come into existence. So follow my arguments, and let us go and pray to the gods who reveal thus much to us. Chapter 23 And as he advanced into Sisian country, and was already close to Babylon, he was visited by a dream, and the god who revealed it to him fashioned its imagery as follows. There were fishes which had been cast up from the sea onto the land, and they were gasping and uttering a lament almost human, and bewailing that they had quitted their element, and they were begging a dolphin that was swimming past the shore to help them in their misery, 
just like human beings who are weeping in a foreign land. Apollonius was not in the least frightened by his dream, but set himself to conjecture its meaning and drift, and he was determined to give Damis a shock, for he found that he was the most nervous of men. So he related his vision to him, and feigned as if it foreboded evil. But Damis began to bellow as if he had seen the dream himself, and tried to dissuade Apollonius from going any further. He said, Lest we also, like the fishes, get thrown out of our element and perish, and have to weep and wail in a foreign land. Nay, we may even be reduced to straits, and have to go down on our knees to some potentate or king, who will flout us as the dolphins did the fishes. Then Apollonius laughed and said, You have not become a philosopher yet if you are afraid of this sort of thing. But I will explain to you the real drift of the dream. For this land of Sicia is habited by the Eritreans, who were brought up here from Euboea by Darius five hundred years ago, and they are said to have been treated at their capture like the fishes that we saw in the dream. For they were netted in, so they say, and captured one and all. It would seem, then, that the gods are instructing me to visit them and tend their needs, supposing I can do anything for them. And perhaps also the souls of the Greeks, whose lot was cast in this part of the world, are enlisting my aid for their land. Let us go on and diverge from the high road, and ask only about the well, hard by which their settlement is. Now this well is said to consist of a mixture of pitch and oil and water, and if you draw up a bucket and pour it out, these three elements divide and part themselves from one another. That he really did visit Sicia, he himself acknowledges, in a letter which he wrote to the sophist of Clazomenae, for he was so kind and munificent that when he saw the Eritreans, he remembered the sophist, and wrote to him an account of what he had seen, and of what he had done for them, and all through this letter he urges the sophist to take pity on the Eritreans, and praise him, in case ever he should compose a discourse about them, not to deprecate even the sheddings of tears over their fate. Chapter 24 And the record which Damis has left about the Eritreans is in harmony with this, for they live in the country of the Medes, not far distant from Babylon, a day's journey for a fleet traveller, but their country is without cities, for the whole of Sicia consists of villages, except for a race of nomads that also inhabits it, men who seldom dismount from their horses. And the settlement of the Eritreans is in the centre of the rest, and the river is carried round it in a trench. For they say that they themselves diverted it round the village in order to form a rampart of defence against the barbarians of the country. But the soil is drenched with pitch, and is bitter to plant in, and the inhabitants are very short-lived, because the pitch in the water forms a sediment in most of their bowels. And they get their sustenance off a bit of rising ground on the confines of the village, where the ground rises above the tainted country. On this they sow their crops, and regard it as their land. And they say that they have heard from the natives that seven hundred and eighty of the Eritreans were captured, not of course all of them fighting men, for there was a certain number of women and old men among them, 
and there was, I imagine, a certain number of children, too, for the greater portion of the population of Eritrea had fled to Caffarius, and to the furthest extremes of Euboea. But anyhow, the men who were brought up numbered about four hundred, and there were ten women, perhaps, but the rest, who had started from Ionia and Lydia, perished as they were driven up. And they managed to open a quarry on the hill, and as some of them understood the art of cutting stone, they built temples in the Greek style, and a marketplace large enough for their purpose, and they dedicated various altars, two to Darius, and one to Xerxes, and several to Deradius. But up to the time of Deradius, eighty-eight years after their capture, they continued to write in the manner of the Greeks, and what is more, their ancient graves are inscribed with the legend, So-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And though the letters are Greek, they said that they never yet had made them out. And there were ships engraved on the tombstones, to show that the various individuals had lived in Euboea, and engaged either in seafaring trade, or in that of purple, as sailors or as dyers. And they say that they read an elegiac inscription written over the sepulchre of some sailors and seafarers, which ran thus. Here we, who once sailed over the deep-flowing billows of the Aegean Sea, are lying in the midst of the plain of Ecbatana. Farewell, once-famed fatherland of Eritrea, farewell, Athens. Ye neighbors of Euboea, farewell, thou darling sea. Well, Damis says that Apollonius restored the tombs that had gone to ruin and closed them up and that he poured out libations and made offerings to their inmates, all that religion demands, except that he did not slay or sacrifice any victim. Then, after weeping and in an excess of emotion, he delivered himself of the following apostrophe in their midst. Ye Eritreans, who by the lot of fortune have been brought hither, ye, even if ye are far from your own land, have at least received burial. But those who cast you hither perished unburied round the shores of your island ten years after yourselves. For the gods brought about this calamity in the hollows of Euboea. And Apollonius, at the end of his letter to the sophist, writes as follows. I also attended, O Scopelianus, to your Eritreans, while I was still a young man, and I gave what help I could, both to their dead and the living. What attention, then, did he show to their living? This, the barbarians, in the neighborhood of the hill, when the Eritreans sowed their seed upon it, would come in summertime and plunder their crops, so that they had to starve and see the fruits of their husbandry go to others. When, therefore, he reached the king, he took pains to secure for them the sole use of the hill. Chapter 25 I found the following to be an account of the sage's stay in Babylon, and of all we need to know about Babylon. The fortifications of Babylon extend 480 stadia, and form a complete circle, and its wall is three half-plethrons high, but less than a plethron in breadth, and it is cut asunder by the river Euphrates into halves of similar shape and there passes underneath the river an extraordinary bridge, 
which joins together by an unseen passage the palaces on either bank for it is said that a median woman was formerly queen of those parts who spanned the river underneath in a manner in which no river was ever bridged before for she got stones it is said and copper and pitch and all the materials which men have found set under water and she piled these up along the banks of the river then she diverted the stream into lakes and as soon as the river was dry she dug down two fathoms and made a hollow tunnel which she caused to debauch into the palaces on either bank like a subterranean grotto and she roofed it on a level with the bed of the stream the foundations were thus made stable and also the walls of the tunnel but as the pitch required water in order to set as hard as stone the euphrates was let in again to flood the roof and so the bridge stood solid and the palaces are roofed with bronze and a glitter goes off from them but the chambers of the women and of the men and the porticos are adorned partly with silver and partly with golden tapestries or curtains and partly with solid gold in the form of pictures but the subjects embroidered on the stuffs are taken by them from hellenic story andromedus being represented and amumani and you see orpheus everywhere and they delight in orpheus perhaps out of regard for his peaked cap and breeches for it cannot be for his music or the songs with which he charmed and soothed others and woven into the pattern you perceive datis drawing up naxos out of the sea and artapaphernes beleaguering eritrea and such battles of xerxes as he said he won for a little further off of course there is athens and thermopylae and other pictures still more to the median taste such as rivers drained from off the land and a bridge over the sea and the piercing of athos but they say that they also visited a man's apartment of which the roof had been carried up in the form of a dome to resemble in a manner the heavens and that it was roofed with sapphire a stone that is very blue and like heaven to the eye and there were images of the gods which they worship fixed aloft and looking like golden figures shining out of the ether and it is here that the king gives judgment and golden wrynecks are hung from the ceiling four in number to remind him of edrestia the goddess of justice and to engage him not to exalt himself above humanity these figures the magi themselves say they arranged for they have access to the palace and they call them the tongues of the gods chapter twenty six with respect to the magi apollonius has said all that there is to be said how he associated with them and learned some things from them and taught them others before he went away but damis is not acquainted with the conversations which the sage held with the magi for the latter forbade him to accompany him in his visits to them so he tells us merely that he visited the magi at midday and about midnight and he says that he once asked his master what of the magi but the latter answered they are wise men but not in all respects chapter twenty seven but of this later on when then he arrived at babylon the satrap in command of the great gates 
having learnt that he had come to see the country, held out a golden image of the king, which everyone must kiss before he is allowed to enter the city. Now an ambassador coming from the Roman emperor has not this ceremony imposed upon him, but anyone who comes from the barbarians, or just to look at the country, is arrested with dishonor unless he has first paid his respects to this image. Such are the silly duties committed to satraps among barbarians. When, therefore, Apollonius saw the image, he said, Who is that? And on being told that it was the king, he said, This king whom you worship would acquire a great boon if I merely commended him as of an honorable and good reputation. And with these words he passed through the gate. But the satrap was astonished and followed him, and taking hold of his hand he asked him through an interpreter his name and his family, and what was his profession and why he came thither. And he wrote down the answers in a book, and also a description of his dress and appearance, and ordered him to wait there. Chapter 28 But he himself ran off to the persons who are known as the ears of the king, and described Apollonius to them, after first telling them both that he refused to do homage, and that he was not the least like other men. They bade him, bring him along, and show him respect without using any violence. And when he came, the head of the department asked him what induced him to flout the king, and he answered, I have not yet flouted him. But would you flout him? was the next question. Apollonius said, Why, of course I will, if, on making his acquaintance, I find him to be neither honorable nor good. Well, and what presents do you bring for him? Apollonius answered afresh that he brought courage and justice, and so forth. The other said, Do you mean to imply that the king lacks these qualities? He answered, No, indeed but I would fain teach him to practice them, in case he possesses them. Said the other, And surely it was by practicing these qualities that he has recovered the kingdom, which you behold, after he had lost it, and has restored his house. No light task this, nor easy. And how many years is it since he recovered his kingdom? Answered the other, This is the third year since, which year began about two months ago. Apollonius then, as was his custom, upheld his opinion and went on. O bodyguard, or whatever I ought to call you, Darius, the father of Cyrus and of Artaxerxes, was master of these palaces, I think, for sixty years, and he is said, when he felt that his end was near at hand, to have offered a sacrifice to justice, and to have addressed her thus, O lady mistress, or whosoever thou art. This shows that he had not long loved justice and desired her, but as yet knew her not, nor deemed that he had won her, and he brought up his two sons so foolishly that they took up arms against one another, and one was wounded and the other killed by this fellow. Well, here is a king who perhaps does not know that he is firmly seated on the throne and you would have me believe that he combines already all these virtues, and you extol him, though, if he does turn out fairly good, 
it is you and not i that will gain thereby the barbarian then glanced at his neighbor and said here is a windfall tis one of the gods who has brought this man here for as one good man associating with another improves him so he will much improve our king and render him more temperate and more gracious for these qualities are conspicuous in this man they accordingly ran into the palace and told everybody the good news that there stood at the king's gates a man who was wise and a helen and a good counsellor End of Volume 1, Book 1, Chapters 20-28